everyone, and welcome to the Wildscast. Today we're going to be rebroadcasting a Lunch and Learn that Rabbi Wilds gave on Facebook Live. Today's topic is Religious Zionism, the State of Israel, and the Holiday of Passover. This is part one of a two-part series where Rabbi Wilds discusses the religious significance not of the land of Israel, but of the modern-day apparatuses of the State of Israel. So without any further ado, here's Rabbi Wilds. Israel is doing Bli Ayin Hara. Israel is doing exceptionally well uh, in regard to dealing with Corona. They've unfortunately had fatalities like every other country in the world, but relative to its population, which is a small one, relative, of course, like to the United States, Israel is smaller than the size of New Jersey in the state of New Jersey, but there have only been, I heard this from Rabbi Sachs yesterday, about 100 deaths any one death of a fellow Jew or any human being, obviously, is bad, is terrible. But relative to what's been going on in the world, Israel has contained this pretty, pretty powerfully. And um, what I wanted to do with you is talk a little about the miracle of Israel. Uh, Daniel Wallach, too many Daniels. Some will have to leave. It's getting too crowded. <laughs> That's not very neighborly of you, Daniel. You need to make room for Daniels. Uh, Bob Tam, welcome. I saw a beautiful picture, Bob, of you and your family dressed up before the Seder. I thought that was great. Welcome, MGE. Welcome, Maya from MGE. So, what does the creation of a modern state in the land of Israel mean as far as Torah is concerned? I mean, we know that what Israel means strategically. We know what Israel means militarily and politically. We even know what it means technologically. Okay, they've got an app now that you can use to detect people with corona. And we know how vital of a force against anti-Semitism Israel remains and how it served as a safe haven uh, after the Holocaust. Uh, and by the way, a little uh, advertisement. A week from tonight, I will be uh, interviewing Dr. Moshe Avital. A week from tonight, believe it or not, is Yom HaShoah. It's Holocaust Memorial Day. And MG will be having a very special program. I will be live uh, on Facebook Live, we've got some great technology that can be side-by-side side with Dr. Moshe Avital, who is a Holocaust survivor, survived Auschwitz, and went on to become a great rabbinic scholar. Um, I mean, I wouldn't say a rabbinic scholar, but I would say a, a Torah scholar. He's not a rabbi technically, but he has a doctoral, um, he, he's a doctorate in Jewish education and has devoted his life to Jewish education. And that'll be a week from Monday night, Facebook Live, um, Dr. Moshe Avital, I'll be interviewing him. Uh, tonight also, by the way, Rabbi, uh, Rabbi Ezra Cohn, together with his uh, brother, Rabbi Donny Cohn, who's a rabbi in Stanford, are going to be conducting an Ask the Rabbi session tonight at 7.30, uh, moderated by a third Cohen, uh, Benjamin Cohn, who's on here uh, helping us out as well. So um, that'll be uh, this evening at 7.30, and then next Monday night is Dr. Moshe Avital. So we all know how vital of a force against anti-Semitism Israel remains, how it served as a safe haven um, after the Holocaust, and how much Israel makes us feel proud and forces the world, if you will, to respect and to take the Jewish people seriously. But what I have, my question for you now is, what does it all mean religiously? What religious value does the creation of a modern state in the land of Israel really carry? 
I mean, and as you can hear, I'm speaking about the state. I'm not talking about the land. The land of Israel, of course, is invested with holiness and sanctity. And you have people in Israel who don't consider themselves Zionists, right? But they move to Israel, they want to live in the land. And it's simple because the Torah says, the Torah tells us about the land of Israel and how holy it is and we're supposed to be living there. It's one of the 613 mitzvot. I'm asking now about the state of Israel and why are some rabbis, including myself, consider themselves religious Zionists? Uh, welcome Tanya, Tanya, welcome Rachel. Uh, happy Passover from Rachel. Welcome Sarah, welcome Erica. Wow, we got a lot of great, I'm doing the romper room Peloton thing again, welcoming names. So I wanna really ask this question about the state and what does it mean as far as Judaism and, and, and Torah is concerned and what does it have to do with Passover? I chose to talk about this today and tomorrow uh, because it's the holiday of Passover. And to answer this question, I wanna thank my teacher, great scholar, author, and thinker of our generation, Rabbi Jacob Schachter, who shared with me much of the ideas that I wanna share with you. And I'm sorry that the handout did not go through, but we're not gonna be using much of the handout tonight anyway. Today anyway, um, I will post this handout for tomorrow, for the class for tomorrow. But I'm asking everyone who's online now, Try to carve out 12.30 tomorrow as well, because I need two parts to be able to teach all this. So Rabbi Shachter, in analyzing the religious significance, that's our question. What is the religious significance, not of the land of Israel? The land is holy. The Talmud says that every time a Jew walks four paces in the land of Israel, you're getting like a mitzvah. And that's why you'll have people who are not Zionists living in the land of Israel, because the land is holy. I'm talking about the government. I'm talking about the state, the army, all of the modern day apparatuses of the secular regime, if you will, of Israel. So I wanna begin with um, a prayer that we say every Shabbat at MGE. And this is one of the prayers that you can continue to say yourself. Um, I wanna encourage people to pray even when we don't have a minion. You can pray without a minion. Uh, Rabbi Shuki sent out a little cheat sheet of how to pray during the week and how to pray on Shabbat, what prayers to say, what pages in the Siddurim. You can find them on. If anybody needs that, please contact either Shuki or myself. And there's one prayer that we say every Shabbat in synagogue, in all the Zionist synagogues around the world. They say this prayer, and it starts with the words, Avinu Shabbashamayim, our Father in heaven, Sur Yisrael Vigo'alo, Rock of Israel and its Redeemer, Barech et Medinat Yisrael, bless the state of Israel, Reshit Tzmichat Geulatenu, the beginning of the flowering of our redemption. I'll say it again. Our Father, who was in heaven, protector and redeemer of Israel, bless the state of Israel, and in English it says, which marks the dawn of our deliverance. Now, I want to focus on the Hebrew words. Um, Reshit tzmichat gulatenu, and that's a very important phrase that's gonna help us understand the religious significance of the state of Israel. And remember, the state of Israel is not a religious entity. The state of Israel is the government. Uh, you don't see everybody in the government wearing a kippah or observing Shabbat or keeping kosher, right? Some people in the government are observant, some people in the government are not observant. But the government itself is not a religious entity. It's a government like any other government, just happens to be run by Jews, for Jews. And in this prayer, we, we bless Israel that, and we refer to it as three words, reshit, 
Tzmichat Geulatenu. Say that ten times fast with me. Reshit, which means the beginning. Tzmichat of the flowering. Geulatenu of our redemption. We're referring to the secular government of Israel as the beginning of the flowering of our redemption. What does that mean, the beginning of the flowering of our redemption? And what does it have to do with Passover and our Zionism today? Now, first of all, a little background. The prayer that I'm quoting from, that we say every Shabbat, that you can continue to say in your home alone. This prayer was written by former chief rabbi of Israel, Rabbi Chaim Herzog, big scholar and religious Zionist. And he wrote this together with Shai Agnon, who won the Nobel Prize for Literature. And there was a lot of thought that went into this prayer, and it was designed to convey the idea that Israel was simply more, is, is more than simply a secular state that has a lot of Jews in it, right? And, 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 and it's different than all other governments, and its army is different than all of the armies. So they composed a prayer that acknowledges the theological significance of Israel. But notice the language, Reshit Tzmichat Geulatenu, the beginning of the flowering of our deliverance. What does that mean? That's question number one. Now let's get into Pesach a little. The second question my teacher asks, raises a lot, takes us back further into the Torah. And, the, and that takes us into the episode of the burning bush. And actually, about a week or two ago, I discussed this episode. It's the longest dialogue in the Bible, where God confronts Moses, and he tells him, if you want to follow along, um, and you have a Torah at home, it is in the book of Exodus, in chapter 3, verse 9. The book of Exodus, chapter 3, verse 9. And God tells Moses that I've seen the oppression to which the Jewish people have been subject. And then God tells Moshe, I want you to go to Pharaoh and demand the release of the children of Israel. Now remember who Moshe was. Moshe was from Egypt. He was raised in the house of Paro. He then kills the Egyptian to save his fellow Jew, runs away to Midian and is a shepherd, gets married, has a whole other life there. And now he sees this burning bush. He's attracted to the burning bush and God appears to him and says, I want you to go back to Egypt, Moses, and I want you to go get my people. How does Moses respond? Who am I to go to Pharaoh? I'm not, I, I don't even speak well. Moshe goes into all of these excuses and he starts telling him that Pharaoh's not going to take me seriously. God tells him, don't worry, I'll be with you. Uh, everything will be okay. I know about your speech impediment. You can take your brother Aaron with you. Moshe says, okay, but they're not going to believe me. So then God gives Moshe these very two cool miracles. Remember the miracles? Take your staff, throw it on the floor, it'll turn into a snake. And uh, take your hand, put it inside on your chest, and it will come out white. <laughs> it looks very white because the light is on me. It is white as leprous. And if Pharaoh doesn't buy those miracles, God says to Moses, I'll give you the power to turn the Nile the ancient Nile that the Egyptians used to worship, I will give you the power to turn that Nile into blood. Moshe's response, same chapter, goes into chapter four in the book of Exodus. Uh, God, lo I'm not a, I don't speak very well. I'm not particularly articulate. He brings up another excuse. God says, don't pull the speech thing on me. I'm the one who gives speech. I'll be your mouth, just go. 
And then it's just crazy. By the way, it's the longest dialogue in the Torah. And Moshe responds, send through whomever you will send, which is a very enigmatic statement, which I'm going to come back to later. But what's the deal with Moshe arguing with God so much? It seems like real chutzpah. God's telling Moshe to go to Pharaoh to get the Jewish people out. And Moshe's making excuses. Who am I? They're not going to believe me. I mean, where's Moshe's confidence, a little confidence? And not just the confidence, but where's Moshe's sensitivity? Every minute he's arguing with God about going or not going, his brethren are being beaten in the fields of Egypt. Now, another question for you. By the way, if anyone has any questions or comments, every time I lean forward here, I'm looking at the comments or questions that people put here. Uh, feel free to ask away. Great to have Adam Kaplan with us, Ahava, Jonathan Gurman, everyone else that's joined us online. So another question that we need to shift on Passover, and that's the Seder night. It wasn't that long ago. Anybody know why do we have four cups of wine at the Seder? I talked about this at my mock Seder. What's the deal with the four cups of wine? Anybody know? Four cups of wine. I'll wait. Why do we have four cups of wine? We have four a lot at the Seder. Jonathan Brody, four expressions. Thank you, my friend. Four expressions of redemption. The Bible, the Torah itself, gives four different expressions of how God redeemed the Jewish people. And great. However, there is actually another reason that's given. And that has to do with the word kos, cup. Mentioned four times. Who knows? When the Bible, when the Torah mentions the word cup four times, the story with who? Who's going on here? Help you get through the Seder. Okay. <laughs> Who's the, who said that? Elad. Elad says we have four cups of wines because it helps you get through the Seder. Why don't you have ten? Why four? Nice try. Um, so the other reason is because the word cup is used four times in the Torah in talking about one story, and that's the story of Joseph. Remember Joseph, before our ancestors descended into Egypt, Joseph was first sent into slavery, and he was thrown into the pit, remember? He was working for the house of Potiphar, and Potiphar's wife had a little too much time on her hands. She starts making advances, sexual advances against Yosef. Yosef pulls back, but she accuses him of making a pass at her, Interesting that the first sexual harassment story in the Torah is of a woman sexually harassing a man in the workplace. Um, and uh, Joseph is thrown into jail. Uh, by the way, I cannot even tell you how windy it is in this home right now. I don't know if you're hearing the wind coming, but like, it's nuts here. Um, so the Medrash tells us that, the, that when Joseph is in jail, and he's explaining the butler's dream, the word kos, which is Hebrew for cup, is used four different times. Now, there are a couple of other references to Joseph in the Passover story. In temple times, Passover, we know, was celebrated through the offering of the Paschal Lamb. And the Paschal Lamb was sacrificed in the temple. But how did they get the offering? The offering was an animal. From the temple to their homes. In other words, after they would sacrifice the, the lamb, they were supposed to eat of its meat. Every family was supposed to sit and eat of its meat. That's what they did on the Seder night. How did they get the meat 
from the temple to their homes where they went to eat dinner. They didn't dine in the temple. Um, yeah, Joseph places a cup in the bag. He frames the brothers, right, Jonathan Brody? Excellent. So there's all this stuff with the cup, and the word cup is mentioned four times. But the Talmud says that everyone, back to the temple, you bring their Paschal offering, everyone would put the meat into the skin of the animal and use the skin as a sack and carry the meat of the Paschal offering like Arab merchants, the Talmud says. So charim elim. Where in the Torah do we find the image of an Arab merchant? Anyone know? You guessed it, Joseph. When Joseph is thrown into the pit by his brothers, Arab merchants find Joseph. They take him into their caravan and sell him down to Egypt into slavery. That's the second reference of Joseph at your Seder. First, the word cup is mentioned four times. One of the reasons we have four cups of wine, not just because we have four expressions of redemption, but because there are four mentions of the word cup in the Joseph story, that's one. Two, Arab merchants, right? That reference to Arab merchants that they would swing it over their shoulder and carry the meat back like Arab merchants, that conjures up the story of Joseph being thrown into the pit, sold into slavery. And finally, why do we dip the egg into the salt water at your Passover Seder? And why do we dip the maror into the haroset? A lot of dipping going on on the night of the Seder. And some say, anybody know, what does it have to do with Joseph dipping? Dipping, Joseph? Joseph dipping? Anybody want to say? Okay, someone else just came on. Eric, welcome. Because what was dipped from Joseph? Joseph's coat of many colors was dipped into the blood by the brothers to convince their elderly father that Joseph had been ripped apart by animals. Somebody wrote this down, blood in the jacket, Jonathan Brody. Great, I know there's a little delay. So at the Seder, we dip. So we have these three references to Joseph at the Seder. Four cups alluding to when Joseph explained the butler's dream in prison. The way the meat of the Paschal offering was brought home like Arab merchants, causing us to remember the way Joseph was sold into slavery. And finally, finally the dipping, to reenact the dipping of Joseph's coat um, of many colors. Why do we want to reference Joseph at our Seder? What does our Seder, recalling our ancient enslavement in Egypt, have to do with Joseph? And my teacher, and this is going to get us back into Israel now, suggests something very, very powerful. He suggests that it's to teach us that redemption isn't always smooth. Redemption can take all sorts of turns and twists, just like who? The life of Joseph. More than any other biblical personality, the life of Joseph represents the up and down, the roller coaster, crazy, tipsy, terpsy, tipsy, turvy kind of life that any human being could ever experience in their lives. Look at Joseph's life. How does Joseph start his life? As a young favored child of his father. He's the cherished and favored son. He's given the coat of many colors. Right now, caused a lot of jealousy with his brothers, but he is put on a pedestal from the time he's, he's a little boy. But then he's thrown into the pit by his brothers, and he literally goes from the chosen son into the pit, and then he's sold into slavery. Now, he's sold into slavery, but he very quickly rises and placed in charge of the house of Potiphar. He becomes 
an important person in a nobleman's house. And he's on top again. And then very quickly, Potiphar's wife accuses him of sexual advances, which of course was just the opposite. Gets thrown into jail. Now he's back down in jail. Joseph again, right, is descending into the pit. Actually, it's interesting that the Torah refers to the jail cell that Joseph was in as a boar, as a pit. And he descends only to be fetched from jail to interpret Pharaoh's dreams. Pharaoh realizes what a brilliant dream interpreter Joseph is. And he pulls him back up and he appoints him viceroy, second in command only to Pharaoh himself. Joseph's life is the paradigmatic roller coaster of ups and downs. And our sages wanted to reference this at the Seder because Passover is, is celebrating our first redemption, the redemption from Egypt. And we have to remember that redemption isn't always simple. It isn't always smooth. Redemption isn't always straight. It may involve ups and downs, highs and lows. And that's why Moshe, suggests Rabbi Shachter, my teacher, that's why Moshe argued so much with God when God tells him to go to Pharaoh and to demand the release of his people. Was Moshe such a chutzpah type of person not to listen to God? Was he so insensitive to the plight of his people's suffering that he would refuse this chance to, to secure the release of his brethren? No, it was just the opposite. Moshe didn't want to go because Moshe saw through his prophetic vision that if he was the redeemer and savior of the Jewish people, it would be up and it would be down. It would be a crazy, crazy roller coaster. And he said to God, why are you gonna bring the Jewish people out of Egypt through me? Don't bring the Jewish people out of Egypt through me. Bring about the redemption in a faster, in a more direct kind of way. An important rabbinic source, the Pirkei de Rabbi Eliezer, suggests that when Moshe said, shlach na send through whomever else you're going to send, just don't use me as the instrument of your redemption. Send Eliyahu Anavi, Elijah the prophet. We know that Eliyahu is supposed to be the harbinger of the messianic redemption. Moshe was referring to, to, to the Messiah, to messianic redemption. Moshe, through his prophetic vision, understood that if he was the one to redeem the Jews, he understood that it would be an up and down, high and low situation. He saw into the future. And he said to God, if you send me, if you use me as the instrument of your redemption, then the people will wander in the desert for 40 years. They'll eventually get to Israel, but they'll have to fight. And then eventually we'll be able to build a temple, but it'll be destroyed, and then there'll be an exile. And then they'll come back after that terrible Babylonian exile, and we will rebuild again. But there will be more persecution, and more exile, and crusades, and expulsions, and pogroms, and a holocaust. Moshe understood that if he was the man for the job, this would be a Joseph type of redemption. It wouldn't be straight, it wouldn't be smooth, it would be up and down, highs and lows. Moshe says, why so much suffering? Send Eliyahu Hanavi already. Shlach Nabiyat Shlach, just send the guy you're gonna eventually send anyway. Bring the Mashiach now. HaKadosh Baruch Hu, God responds to Moshe in the name of the Pirkei de Rabbi Eliezer. And as for that man of whom you say I should send him to Israel, in the future he will come, but not now. God is telling Moshe, 
I one day will send Eliyahu to bring the Mashiach, but not now. Now I want you to redeem the Jewish people. Ladies and gentlemen, everyone who's listening to this, this is what my teacher, Rabbi Schachter, suggested, was represented in 1948, when the modern state of Israel was established. But some great rabbis believed that that day had come, not the actual Mashiach itself, but that the return of Jewish people from all over the world, the beginning of the formation of a political entity that we call a state, in the land of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, of Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, and Leah, was the beginning of the Messianic redemption. Not the Messianic redemption itself, but the beginning of the Messianic redemption. And we're gonna go back to the first source that we began to talk about, the prayer that we say every Shabbat that you can continue to say in your homes every day, you can say it every day, really. We usually just say it on Shabbat. We say, Avinu Shabbat Shemayim Tzu Yisrael V'Go'alo, our Father in Heaven, a protector of Israel and its Redeemer, Barechet Medinat Yisrael, Reshit Tzmichat Geulatenu, the beginning of the unfolding, of the flowering of our redemption. We ask, what kind of language is that? Shai Agnon and Rabbi Herzog co-authored this beautiful prayer. What idea were they trying to capture? They were saying, it's not the Mashiach, but it's the beginning of the unfolding of the Mashiach. And if you look also, there's another important rabbinic source. I'm sorry I don't have the source, but I'm going to show this to you tomorrow when we're able to post it. There were two great Talmudic sages, a great story that is told. Rabbi Chi and Rabbi Shimon, they're walking early in the morning and they see the Alot HaShachar. The Alot HaShachar is the dawn of the sun. You know, if you're up super early, and you open up your window and you can look outside and you don't, the sun is not out yet, but you see the first rays upon the horizon. And when Rav Acha, Rav Chia, sees that, he turns to his colleague Rav Shimon and he says, Kahu Geula Sancha Yisrael. So too is the redemption of Israel. It comes in stages. It doesn't just happen overnight, right? You don't just see a ball of sun coming out of the, the, the thick of the night. We would go blind. It's gradual, right? First it gets dark, and then all of a sudden, later on, after the night is over, little by little, you start seeing the first rays upon the horizon, and little by little, you start seeing the sun actually rising. You don't just see the ball of the sun appearing out of nowhere. Little by little, as the Medrash says, it begins to sparkle. It gathers strength, and ultimately, the light spreads over the entire sky. And for many, 1948, the creation of this secular, modern state of Israel was not the redemption itself. It wasn't the ball of the sun itself, if you will, but it was the first light upon the horizon. And that is what Rabbi Shachter suggested, is what Rav Herzog and Shai Agnon, these two authors of this beautiful prayer, were trying to capture in this tefillah, the Shlom Hamedina that we say every Shabbat. They refer to Israel's Rishit Simichat Geulatenu, the first of the blossoming of the redemption. It's not the redemption itself, because we know that the actual Mashiach, there wouldn't be a corona if the Mashiach was here. And there wouldn't be anti-Semitism, which unfortunately is still in the world today. And Israel wouldn't have to spend 40% of its GNP, of its gross natural, natural, uh, national product on the military. Do you know what that is for a country to have to spend 40%? The United States spends a lot, on the military, maybe it's four or five percent. 
40% in Israel because we're surrounded by some, you know, live in a pretty tough neighborhood there. And so we're not living in the days of the Mashiach. But can you say that the Jewish people coming back to the land of our forefathers in modernity after the Holocaust is just some sort of fluke of coincidence? Some crazy mishap of history? No. There's something special going on here. The fact that Jews from all over the world coming back to Israel and creating a political sovereignty in the land where Judaism began, where Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob lived, is not the Mashiach, but it's the beginning of something very, very special. And what I'm doing right now is articulating one particular religious perspective on Zionism. And it is the religious perspective of I'll call him the Rav Kook next. Rabbi Abraham Isaac Cook was the first chief rabbi of Israel who viewed the return to Zion as the beginning of the Messianic redemption. His son, Rav Tzvi Yehuda Cook, took over the mantle of this philosophy and he brought it to an even greater plane and is the major ideological force behind what we call the Gush Emunim movement, which seeks to settle as much land in Israel as possible because if this is the coming of the Mashiach, and we need to get as many Jews to Israel. We need to populate as many areas in Israel as possible. We got to do our part to help take this beginning part of the Mashiach and actually create the ultimate messianic redemption. That's why particularly this group is the most opposed, was the most opposed to the Gaza disengagement years ago. Not simply because of political or strategic reasons. And unfortunately, as the world is seeing, unfortunately, uh, has become a terrorist uh, haven for Hamas. But that group, the Gush Emunim group and the Rav Kukniks, were against giving back land and they continue to be against giving back any land, not only for security or political reasons, but because if in fact this is the beginning of the Mashiach, then giving away any land, even if it could secure peace, could be seen as holding up the Messianic redemption from ultimately arriving. And that is one major, major ideological force in the religious Zionist movement. And it's very messianic. It says essentially that the Mashiach has not come. Nobody claims Ben-Gurion, uh, who was Israel's first prime minister and a great uh, founder of modern day Zionism, or Theodor Herzl, who was really the uh, ideological uh, founder of modern Zionism. These guys, they're not guys, they were great, great heroes of the people of Israel, please do not get me wrong, but they were clearly not trying to create some kind of messianic reality. You know, you could argue a little that some of the early secular Zionistic leaders were socialist in their view and had a little of a, a little glimpse of the messianic, but not a religious messianic reality, maybe a little more of a utopian kind of society uh, that, that they were kibbutzniks and they were socialists. I know that sounds like a dirty word for many people, but uh, the early Zionist founders were primarily socialist in their ideology and in, in their thinking. Uh, I've read uh, a, a, a number of works from, um, from Ben-Gurion, particularly his memoirs. Very, very prophetic in his vision. He wanted to create uh, a state of, of Israel that would be this light amongst the nations, but it was essentially a secular modern state and government that could stand tall amongst the nations of the world with its own flag and its own Pledge of Allegiance and its in a strong government and army, but it wasn't to create the Mashiach, but the Rav Kuknicks. 
they really believed that that's really what was happening. And that's why Rav Kook himself, he was the chief rabbi of the state of Israel before it even became a state in like the 1920s and 1930s. And he was an awesome, awesome thinker. I was using his Haggadah on, uh, Ajil actually was using his Haggadah on Pesach and quoting from it. Uh, he was a, a mystic in his thinking. He was a great Talmudist, a genius of a great of a rabbinic personality. But he was a very staunch religious Zionist and his religious Zionism was steeped in Messianicism. And he would go to these secular kibbutzes. He would go to these kibbutzes and he would see his brethren working the land. And he, would, he wore his long black coat and, and he had the, the, the bekeshet. He was like a very orthodox religious looking person. And he would embrace his more secular Zionist brothers and sisters because he believed that they were bringing the Mashiach. He didn't believe they were the Mashiach, but he believed that they were literally sowing the seeds for the coming of the Messianic redemption. Now, tomorrow, we're going to focus on a completely different perspective. Um, another great religious Zionist of our generation, um, and that was Rabbi Joseph B. Soloveitchik, who many of you have heard me quote many, many times before. And Rav Soloveitchik was as staunchly religiously Zionist as Rav Kook, but for a completely different reason. He did not view uh, modern-day Israel as having religious significance. The modern secular government and army of Israel as having religious significance for the same reason that Rav Kook did. And I'm going to leave you hanging a little. He had a different ideology, different philosophy, and I'm going to post something tomorrow that we're going to read through to study a little of Rabbi Soloveitchik's approach to religious Zionism. But his religious Zionism was, was very, very different. It was not messianic at all. It was very different from Rav Kook. He had a lot of respect for Rav Kook. For Rav Kook. They actually met at one point. They lived during the same period of time. By the way, Rav Soloveitchik's yard site, I think it was his 27th yard site was just yesterday. He passed away in Cholomoyd, I remember. Um, in Cholomoyd Pesach. So, Tomorrow we will learn Rabbi Joseph B. Soloveitchik's perspective on religious Zionism. And we're gonna study a little also why there was such a clash between certain rabbis. And it exists to this day, not as, you know, the, the, um, the, the clash isn't felt as dramatically as it was back then, but it still exists. Why some Orthodox rabbis are not Zionistic in their orientation and other Orthodox rabbis are, clearly MGE and all of our rabbis are, and, and I'm giving you two different perspectives really to, to learn about. Rav Cook's messianic approach, and tomorrow, please God, we'll study Rabbi Soloveitchik's approach, which is not messianic at all, but just as powerful. And it was over this particular issue that Rav Soloveitchik became, in a sense, persona non grad, really um, an outcast amongst some of his other rabbinic colleagues over this particular issue. He actually broke with the mainstream Orthodox Rabbinic Association over this particular issue, the more ultra-Orthodox, I should say, Rabbinic Association, uh, because he believes so much in the state of Israel, the modern secular state of Israel is having religious significance, but as I say, for a completely different reason. And I'm studying all of this on Passover, Studying this on Pesach, 
because Pesach is the time to talk about redemption. And at least Rav Cook's view is very messianic and redemptive if you will. And that's really what one of the reasons we spent so much time on Passover, thinking about the fact that we were slaves. Because we think about the fact that we were redeemed from that exile. And we're still looking to be redeemed from our exile today. To be able to live in Israel in peace and in harmony without disease ravaging the world, without anti-Semitism, without the kind of problems that unfortunately Israel still has to contend with. We're living at a very unique moment in history. We're literally on the precipice and the cusps of something spectacular, and we've already experienced something spectacular. Next week, Monday night, we're gonna hear from Dr. Moshe Avital. I'm gonna be interviewing him on Facebook Live. And you're gonna hear about a man who survived Auschwitz and went on to dedicate his life to Jewish education. And he has been in Israel, he has a lot of family that lives in Israel, and you'll hear from him what a miracle the state and the government and the army of Israel is. And I give just a huge shout out to uh, all of my friends and relatives. I see that my dear friend Lee Waxman just came on uh, before. Uh, Lee has two kids, two of her four children, Lee and her have done the army in Israel. And my cousin Rhonda, who lives in Israel, um, Daniel, uh, my cousin Daniel Wilds uh, Mestel, uh, just started uh, his service this week. I had a number of friends. Uh, my son Ezra, a very close friend who lives in Israel, just was drafted into the IDF just this week. And it's an unbelievable moment that we're living in, in Israel. And it's not just a fluke of history that we got there. Rav Cook believed that we are there today because Mashiach hasn't yet come, but it started to come. We're seeing the... The, 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 the first light upon the horizon, right? And remember that metaphor that we talked about before, when it's dark out and little by little, and then you start seeing a little ray of light. And pretty soon the ray of light becomes the ball of the sun itself. And that's the Mashiach itself, where we are living with the ray of light. And you can only perhaps appreciate it best when you hear from someone who lived before there was a state and who saw the horrors of the Holocaust and made it through Auschwitz and then lives in Israel, who has children who live in Israel and serve in the IDF. That is the most extraordinary, extraordinary expression of a miracle of our day and age that we should never, God forbid, take for granted. And we're gonna be talking about this tomorrow again on our Lunch and Learn. And then next Monday night, we will also um, hear from Dr. Moshe Avital about his experiences in the show. It's Yom HaShoah next week. And, um, and coming out of the Holocaust and helping to build the state of Israel. Um, Chloe is saying definitely Mashiach is coming if it isn't, um, hold on, I'm trying to read her, if it isn't already here and we aren't aware yet. A lot of crazy things going on. Um, Israel is looking more appealing each and every day. Yes, it is. Israel handled Amy uh, this Corona thing better than any other country, I think, in the world. Just saw a video that went out yesterday. Israel's just incredible. It's just a great, great blessing for all of us. Um, and we're going to be celebrating Yom Atzmut in a couple of weeks as well. So stick with us. Continue with us tomorrow. I want to also mention that um, Rabbi Ezra Cohen and his brother, uh, another dear friend and rabbi, Rabbi Donnie Cohn, 
will be live Facebook tonight at 7.30 for an Ask the Rabbi session coordinated by a third Cohen, Binyamin Cohen, who's also working for us at MGE now. Um, they will be here live tonight for an Ask the Rabbi, a Passover Ask the Rabbi session, but you can ask any question you want. You're gonna have two rabbis, two brother rabbis, one who's the rabbi of Agudat Shalom in Stanford, our dear friend Rabbi Dani Cohn, and the other MGE Downtown and COO Rabbi Ezra Cohn that will be tonight. And I thank you all for coming in, for listening. Hopefully tomorrow I will have some electricity. I mean, you gotta just see how crazy this is. The, the window, oh, actually I did not mean to do that. Take a look outside the window. This is the window right outside my window. It just looks a little bleak. It is literally crazy out there. Uh, windy and rainy. So hopefully we will have electricity tomorrow. We will come back then. Have a great, amazing day. Remember, I say this every single day. Make sure you pick up the phone. Uh, call. FaceTime if you can. Zoom a loved one, someone who's older, your parents, your grandparents, someone who's feeling a little vulnerable, and continue to daven for those who need a refor shlema, for those who need a complete recovery during this difficult time, particularly in New York. It's a rough, rough time. I want to thank you all for participating and coming in. Um, yeah, I will stay indoors. Uh, uh, Lisa, I appreciate that. Um, and uh, just stay safe, everyone. And... Uh, enjoy Chol HaMoed, just so you know, also Chol HaMoed, it's not, it's part of Passover, of course, Passover holiday starts again tomorrow night, Tuesday night, now we can operate electricity, we have special prayers, if anybody wants the cheat sheet to be able to know what prayers to say, what page you can find on them, please uh, uh, send me an email or WhatsApp me, and I'll get you that information, and uh, please God in the Zuchut of our brothers and sisters in Israel, and specifically those who serve and, and in the IDF, we should all be Zoha, each and every one of us, the whole world over, um, to be redeemed from our exile, from all of the difficulties of this exile, and we're seeing one of them right now, which is that we don't have cures for everything. And please, God, let's get through this quickly, let's get through this soon, and let's stay healthy and positive. Keep yourself positive. Work out today. Eat healthily today. Call a friend today. Stay connected. And we'll see you soon. Have a great day, everyone. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of The Wildcast. Subscribe to our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or your favorite podcast app. If you haven't already, Please leave us a review on the Apple Podcast Store. It only takes a minute, and when you do, it helps others discover the show. For more information about the Manhattan Jewish Experience, visit our website at jewishexperience.org or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks again for joining us today.